Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am both humbled and blessed to be speaking to you today. And if you are not yet in the family of God, I am especially glad you are here as well, because I pray this message will have value for you too. I think we should know a little bit about the person who's bringing God's word to us, so a short introduction is in order. I'm Steve Siegler, my wonderful wife Debbie, and I have been here at Laurel Hill for almost 10 years, in fact 10 years next month. But we have both attended church all our lives, both accepting Christ around 11 or 12 years old. And for the past six years or so, I've been involved in the Iwana program here on Wednesday evenings. I bring, a, bring the children a lesson from the Iwana curriculum, but I've never preached a sermon to adults before, before bringing the same sermon to the Spanish congregation a couple weeks ago. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Bruce asked me if I would be willing to present a Sunday message to you when the other pastors and the elders would be unavailable for one reason or another. So today, you get a rookie. When I began working on this message, it seemed apparent to me that God was giving it, and I was, be, and I was blessed to be his messenger. And that's as it should be. Our attention is supposed to be on God's word, not on the speaker no matter how experienced he may be. So please pray with me that the word is what you and I hear through this message today, God's word, even in spite of how clumsy I am at delivering it. The night Bruce asked me, I had just taught the Iwana class about the group of books in the Bible called the Books of Wisdom, the five books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. In those books, wisdom is a central and much repeated theme, and it was still all piled up in my thinking. You may notice, however, that the scripture verses we will use today are from elsewhere in, the, in God's word. But wisdom was the basis of God's leading as I began to prepare. So before I begin in earnest, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are blessed to be in your presence this morning. We pray you would soften our hearts as we hear your word and make us more like your son, Jesus. It's through the authority of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, to be wise, of course, is an admirable goal. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, encouraging them in their faith. He reminded them of the many cultural pitfalls around them and that they should be imitators of God. And since God arranged to have these reminders and instruction in his word, the Bible, they are delivered to us today as well. Now the passage that has been chosen for us this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. Would you please stand with me? In reverence for God's word. Now through Paul's writing, God told the Ephesians and today tells us, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Thank you. Please be seated. Live as wise. Am I? How can I know? I may be fooling myself. So let's explore a little and see how God uses the word wisdom, the words wisdom and wise, so we may more accurately judge whether we are living as unwise or wise. Now, wisdom at a basic level can be equated with expertise, the ability to do a certain task exceptionally well. For example, when God desired a physical dwelling among his people after freeing them from bondage out of Egypt, he gave Moses detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Moses was to select workers who were skilled in each of the various trades that would be needed. Weavers, workers of copper, bronze, and silver and gold, jewelers, perfumers. These were some of the trades listed. In Exodus 28.3, God said to Moses, Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. Now God is speaking there of the weavers, the dyers, embroiderers and such for making the priestly clothing to be used in tabernacle service referring to their skill as wisdom that he, God, had given them. Now I'm sure that the workmanship, the artistry, the eye-popping beauty, the top-notch perfection of the tabernacle. But I think I would agree, I think you would agree with me that we need a deeper sense of what wisdom is. It must be more than just a talent or skill even if it is done to perfection. So at a higher, more complex level, wisdom can be described as the ability to apply experience, knowledge, and judgment in making decisions. This level of wisdom comes in handy when we're in society with other people, and our decisions and actions affect the people around us. Let me do a little survey here. Raise your hand if you sometimes enjoy a couple of hours by yourself where you don't interact with a single other person. Quite a few hands, okay? Okay, keep your hand up only if you sometimes go a whole day without, with no contact with anyone else. A whole day. Okay, sometimes, yeah. How about if you only, only keep your hands up if you go a week? Do you ever go a week without any contact? Okay. Not much, no hands there. Okay. So, all hands down. Okay, all right. So you see at some point your life is going to bump into someone else's life. You're going to need this kind of wisdom. Just interacting with others. Now perhaps God has given you a position of some authority. You may be a teacher a boss, a parent, or an administrator. Or maybe God has placed you under some authority. Say a student, an employee, a youngster, or a citizen. These are all examples of relational roles that can benefit from wisdom, this kind of wisdom. 
Now, this kind of wisdom can help relationships run more smoothly, with more justice, and with more kindness. Think how important this higher kind of wisdom Remember, we're talking about wisdom that is the ability to use experience, knowledge, and judgment in making decisions. Think how important that would be for a person who has the job of leading a nation. One would hope a nation's leader would realize that many of his or her decisions have a tremendous effect on others. Did you think I was going to put a political statement in there? (laughs) Not this time. Okay, tell me. Who is the wisest person in the Bible? Who comes to mind? King Solomon, yes, okay. Israel's king, right after King David. Solomon was King David's son. One commentator I read said that Solomon might have been as young as 12 years old when he became king. But he knew he had a daunting responsibility. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we find young King Solomon as he seeks advice from the Lord. Later we'll look at how he seeks God, but for now let's start at verse 5 in chapter 3 in 1 Kings. That up? Can you find that? Okay, there it is. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now if we turn over a page or two to chapter 4, verse 29, we see that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the men of the east, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations, He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And that's how Solomon came to be known as the wisest man ever, world famous. So scripture tells that Solomon was king for 40 years. Did his wisdom help him rule well? Well, it did for a while. Right off, we are told of a judgment he made in a dispute between two women 
who both claimed to be the mother of the same baby. He proclaimed that the baby be divided in two, and each woman get half. And when one woman, when one of the women relented and said that the other may keep the baby whole and alive, Solomon knew the true mother had been revealed, and he ruled accordingly. All Israel heard of the verdict and acknowledged Solomon's wisdom as being from God to administer justice. Also, Israel enjoyed great prosperity during Solomon's reign. But there was a problem. Remember I said we would look at how Solomon sought God's help? Let's go back to chapter 3 in 1 Kings and start at verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. Okay, stop right there. The next verse is verse 5 where we read about Solomon's dream. But there is a dark shadow in what we just read. If you spent even a little time in the Old Testament... You probably caught it, the reference to high places. Now, why would that raise a red flag or be a negative to an Israelite? That's where the pagans worshipped. The high places were places of pagan worship. Now, we won't turn there, but in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, when a new king over God's people is introduced, it is almost always reported what he did with the high places, the areas set up for worship of the foreign gods. That is, did he tear them down, or did he tolerate them, or even participate in pagan worship among God's people? Some did. God had many, many times cautioned his people about being influenced by the idol-worshiping nations around them. And one of the chief ways that degrading influence came was through intermarriage with those who do not worship, who did not worship the true God. But before Solomon asked the Lord for help, he had already ignored those warnings, taking Pharaoh's daughter as wife in order to make an alliance with Egypt. Now, toward the end of his reign, we see in chapter 11, still in 1 Kings, it starts like this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. And it goes on to describe some of the ways Solomon was led away and displeased God, even to the point of building high places of worship for his wives to use and participating with them in their pagan worship. 
Now, can I inject a little sidebar here? Intermarriage in Scripture is not a racial thing. Nothing to do with the color of someone's skin, the shape of their eyes, or the place of birth. The distinction God makes is, are you seeking him? Is he your God? Does he have your heart? Or are you elevating something else above him, holding some little g God up for your heart's devotion? Okay, that's the end of the sidebar. Back to those two examples of wisdom. The one where God gives wisdom as a skill in craft or art, and the other where he gives wisdom to make decisions for a whole nation. And there is a whole range of wisdom in between. Any wisdom, small or great, can be used for the purposes God intended. But the skilled craftsman could create beauty for the tabernacle and later use that skill to make dolls or statues to sell to the idol worshipers because his thirst was for riches rather than for God. So you see the importance of your heart. Okay? And as for Solomon, God greatly blessed Israel through Solomon's reign until 1 Kings 11, verse 9 through 11. Got that up? Okay. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now note the the reason for God's anger there. Solomon's heart had turned away from the Lord. And this was disastrous for Israel because rebellion soon came against Solomon and Israel was divided into two kingdoms. It's a very significant turn for God's people back then. I recommend reading it so that you can know the rest of the story. So what application can we derive today from this ancient history? Now this is true ancient history, by the way. What wisdom has God given you? You might not be a Solomon, able to administer a nation, and you might not know how to polish gems and set them in gold filigree. But God has given you something to do. From the four four or five-year-old who is asked to help set the table all the way up to to the highest, most complex responsibilities like leading a nation. God sees it all. What matters to him is your heart. Is our heart turned toward God? Is he paramount in our thinking, in our ambitions? Are we seeking for him to be the center of our family? our vocation, our friendships, our city and country. How about this church? Or for you on the Internet, the church where you worship. How much do we want to be a part of God moving? On this past Palm Sunday, I felt a rebuke. In Pastor Bruce's message that day, he spoke of folks some years back here at Laurel Hill who had come to him with ideas 
of ways they thought we could serve God better. But they were frustrated because they could not gather enough participation. So they decided to leave Laurel Hill to seek a congregation who in their minds would be more eager to serve God and help his church. Now, I don't know who these folks were or their plan, or their ideas or their ideas' viability, but my first thought was, was I one of the people who, when presented with a possible new effort of the church, did not respond because I'm too busy or that's not my cup of tea or that's too much like work? Did my apathy my complacency or my selfishness hinder God working through our congregation to carry out his will? Did God essentially say, okay, Laurel Hill, you had your chance. I'll do this work through another congregation. Was it me that caused that? Okay. I don't know if anyone else had that kind of response to Bruce's story, but I hope you see the connection to wisdom Had I been acting as unwise? Had I been basing my decisions on me, on my time, on my comfort? Instead of as wise, seeking God's purposes, his will, and his glory. Look with me next at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Isn't that amazing? We can participate in the divine nature. But did you notice that last phrase? Corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What is an evil desire? We could all make a quick list of heinous crimes caused by evil people with evil desires. But boiled down, an evil desire is anything that leads us away from God's plan. For instance, I'll use myself as an example. I'm a woodworker. I enjoy working with tools and machines to craft beautiful woods into a piece of furniture or maybe a musical instrument. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing evil there. I even believe that 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 skill was given to me by God. But if I become so involved in my woodworking, and you can put your favorite pastime in there too, so involved that I am drawn away from the things God has called me to, like time I should be spending with my family or with worship and service to God and his church. Then my desire has turned evil simply because it has taken me away from God's plan. It has turned my heart away from the Lord. So with that in mind, let's look at the highest form of wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote, probably from Rome, to his young friend and student, Timothy, who he had sent to help lead the church in Ephesus. The letter we have as 1 Timothy includes encouragement and instruction that is important to us as well. Paul writes in verse 14, 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Note these two phrases, scriptures which are able to make you wise and equipped for every good work. So we see there that scripture is to be our manual, our curriculum. Someone has said that the anagram B-I-B-L-E stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Now that's cute, but the Bible is much more important than that. Scripture is a vital connection we have with our Creator, our reason for existence. If I willingly ignore Him and His will for me, then my life has about as much ultimate meaning as a piece of driftwood bobbing on the ocean waves, no matter how much skill or worldly wisdom I have. Earlier in Paul's ministry, he was speaking to the men of Athens. These were religious folks, but they worshipped many gods. But Paul proclaimed to them the creator and sustainer God, who has an active hand in history and the lives of individuals. Individuals. Then in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, he told them, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps, perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, our God is a personal God, seeking a relationship with his people. But he's also a holy, just, and moral God who must correct disobedience and rebellion. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is near the time he will have to turn the leadership of the Israelites over to Joshua before they cross over the Jordan River to possess the promised land. He begins his speech by reminding the people of the wonderful ways God has promised to bless them for their obedience. Then he lays out the promised curses they will bring on themselves by their disobedience. Read that sometime and you'll understand why the world is so messed up today. But then at the end of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 19... Moses says to the people, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was spoken to the Israelites through Moses by the same God who today wants a relationship with you and me.
The specifics of the promises may be a little different, but the choice before us is the same. Life and blessings or death and cursings. Easy choice, isn't it? Choose life and blessings. In chapter 5 of his letter to the Ephesian Christians, Paul cautioned them about some of the ways the worldly culture would try to draw them away from their relationship with God. Then in verse 15, we'll see our title verses again. He said, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. There's that choice again, wise or unwise. So how can we understand what the Lord's will is? How can we live as wise? It's all right here in his word, the Bible. But you know what? Sometimes it can seem almost like it's written in code or something. It's so hard to understand. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross, that's what God's word is from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the message of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there are only two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The difference between them is something that gives the ability to understand God's will. Look a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul, speaking of God's Holy Spirit, said, This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, God provides a translator, the Holy Spirit, residing in our hearts, in the hearts of those who accept God's Son, Jesus. And only those who accept Jesus can have a relationship with God. No amount of man's wisdom can gain it, No human greatness can achieve it, only through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is the ultimate wisdom. We may have been blessed with all the wisdom of this world, and even like Solomon, have a discerning heart to distinguish right and wrong. But if we are not turned toward God in relationship through Jesus, we are, as they say, up a creek without a paddle. And I would add, we're even in the wrong creek. So let's wrap this up a little bit. James chapter 3 and verse 15, he writes, Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, speaking of self-serving wisdom, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Wow. For where we have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Now catch this. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Did you see all those? All of those traits, except for submissive, are attributes of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus was submissive to his Father's will. As Christians, that is, as little Christs, we are to imitate what we see in the Father and his Son, Jesus. We cannot be wise with the kind of wisdom that pleases God if our hearts are not turned toward him. And if they are turned toward him, if we are seeking his will, one of the results will be that we have a thirst for his word, the Bible, because that is God talking to us. Ephesians 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I hope there has been something that God has put on display here today. Whether it was something I said, some way God's spirit has moved inside your heart or mind, something that has sparked a desire in you to turn your heart toward God, for that is the wisest decision you could possibly make. Heavenly Father, we have heard you speak today through your word that you had written down so long ago. And through these meager words I have put forth today. Help us to take them to heart, Lord. To seek to be more like your son every day. Putting off our sinful ways. And taking on more and more of his likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Mm-hmm. All right. Everyone stand, please. Seated above, throned in the Father's love. Destined to die. Poured out for all mankind God's only Son Perfect and spotless one He never sinned But suffered as if he did All of
speaking the Father's plan. You're sending us out a light in this broken land. All authority, every Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your awesome power, Lord. Please forgive us the times that we we let you down, that we doubt your power and your awesomeness. Lord, we thank you for 
your son Jesus who came to to live a perfect life, to be that example for us that that we should follow. Lord, we just thank you for the many blessings that you give to us each and every day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.